Hebrews chapter 5, let me open us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that we find there. Above all things, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, and for the work of atonement that he has accomplished for us. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've, we've kind of been in these last verses of chapter 4 and the first verses of chapter 5 for a while, but mostly we've been focused on uh, that, uh, that line, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, in verse 15 of chapter 4. This morning what I want to do is pick up with verse 1 of, of 5 and begin to, to focus on the, uh, the high priest language, the imagery that's used here. We've talked about this frequently enough in different settings, uh, in bits and pieces, but I want to make sure we're all on the same sheet of music uh, about where this image comes from and why it's such a powerful image. Uh, so let's read. We're going to um, read this morning starting in verse 1, and we will read through verse 10. Uh, we may or may not actually get through all of that this morning. but uh, So... Hebrews 5, verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor to himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are, my, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> so, in order to understand this, we have to understand the, the, the role, uh, the position, the office and role of the high priest in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah, and so he's not qualified in that respect to be a priest, much less the high priest, in the, uh, under the law of Moses. But he is a priest nonetheless after a different order, the order of Melchizedek. And so that's what we're going to do. We're gonna, the image is that of the, uh, the high priest under Moses, but Christ is qualified to serve that role because he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to look at those two things. First of all, in, uh, in the law of Moses. So remember that, uh, that there were these 12 tribes, one of whom was the tribe of Levi. Levi is the tribe that Moses and Aaron belonged to. And, uh, and when God delivers his people out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt... Uh, and after the, the, uh, the Red Sea crossing and the amazing, miraculous work of salvation that God did there, he brought his people to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, he gave the law. Uh, in particular, you can read about that in Exodus 19 through 24. And so that law given to the people and all of the, the other instruction that surrounds it, uh, including in the book of Numbers, 
these laws include uh, an understanding of how it is that God will relate to his people. Uh, because his people are sinners, therefore they can't be in the presence of God, they would be destroyed. Uh, something has to happen to, to remove the sin and guilt and curse that stands between God and his people. And God communicates this truth to his people by having them construct a tabernacle. And it's in the tabernacle that he dwells. It's in the tabernacle that his people come to be in fellowship with him. But they can't just willy-nilly come to the tabernacle, walk in, uh, do whatever they like. They need someone to stand between them and God in the fellowship that they have with him there. And that someone is the high priest. There's a priesthood, uh, the, the Levitical priesthood, a group of, of Levites who serve in the temple. They, they do all the business of the temple. They're, they're engaged in the sacrifices and the purification rites, everything that has to be done in order for God to be uh, properly worshipped. But there's only one at any given time, only one high priest. And the instructions given, particularly in Leviticus, for this high priest and the nature of his work and, and how it's to be accomplished and what it accomplishes is incredibly intricate. There's very, very detailed instructions about how he's to dress and about the, the function he's to perform. And his, his role as high priest reaches its crescendo year after year on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, having cleansed himself for service, made an offering for his own sin, then makes an offering for the sin of the people and takes the blood of that offering all the way up into the Holy of Holies. Now, if, if you don't recall or you've never heard, the, the tabernacle that God gave them instructions, again, very detailed instructions on how to build it, what it was to be made of, how it was to be structured, uh, that tent had two rooms in it. Uh, the first two-thirds when you walked in were the holy place, and the last third was the holy holy place, or what we've come to call the Holy of Holies. Uh, and the priests that were on duty could go into the holy place. But the holy, holy place was divided from that place by an unbroken veil, a curtain that went from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, with no break in it. Uh, it's actually multiple layers, this curtain, very heavy curtain. No one is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest, and then only once per year, and then only after he's made sacrifice for his own sins and brings blood of atonement, a, a sacrifice, the blood of a sacrifice that he's going into that holy place <clears throat> to apply to the mercy seat. The mercy seat is essentially the lid on the Ark of the Covenant that sits in the Holy of Holies. We've talked about, I've mentioned this before, even recently, I think, but in, in Scripture, uh, when it describes how the high priest is to be dressed, it includes bells sewn into the hem of his robe, so that as he moves, you can hear him moving. Uh, one of the things that uh, rabbinical tradition records is that he had a, a cord tied to his ankle when he went into the Holy of Holies, so that if the offering was not accepted, uh, if he went in with personal sin 
uh, or for any reason God rejected the offering, uh, he was therefore in the Holy of Holies illegitimately and would be struck dead by God. And it was so serious, the instruction about who can go in and under what circumstances, that there was no way to retrieve his body. So that's why the cord is tied to his ankle, so that they can pull him out of the Holy of Holies if they hear the bells stop, right? A big deal to approach God. And especially during the days of the Exodus, uh, the, God was, was present uh, physically, symbolically, in a, a cloud of smoke, a glory that was on display in the tabernacle. So that's the high priest, and, and he's got other roles, other functions, but this is the most important thing that he does as high priest. Uh, and so he goes into this holy place to make atonement, the Holy of Holies to make atonement with the blood every year. It's important to understand that historical context because that's the, the office and the role, the work, that the author of Hebrews is now ascribing to Christ. And he's going to continue to use this image. He's going to refer to the way it works under Moses and say it's different with Christ in some really important ways. And so here in 5, he says, um, uh, I'm looking back at the end of 414, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That passed through the heavens is a, uh, it's a reference to the high priest passing through the veil for on the Day of Atonement. He would go through the veil to the Holy of Holies in order to make atonement. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1, then he's continuing this thought for every high priest. Now he's going to begin what is a long-term project in his letter here of comparing and contrasting Christ with Aaron and the priesthood and the work that Aaron and the priesthood did and the work that Christ did uh, and the, the efficacy of that work and the covenant within which they're doing that work. He's going to go on for chapters and chapters constantly working this theme. He says in verse one of chapter five for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. This is what a priest does. They act on behalf of us in relation to God. So they stand between us as an intermediary, facing God, if you will, representing us to God. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, what he did was for the people so that in a sense, the people go in with him. And this, this is actually explicitly stated in the Old Testament law because he's wearing with his robes a breastplate that has precious stones on it, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he has the names of the tribes written on his clothing. Uh, and when he goes into the Holy of Holies, he does so as a representative he, he goes in on behalf of all of the people of Israel. This is a persistent theme in redemptive history. Adam was our representative. What he did, he did on our behalf. And ultimately, Jesus Christ is our representative. What he does, he does on behalf of his people. 
And the high priest under Moses is a foreshadowing of Christ. That high priest anticipates the person and work of Christ, and as such, is also a representative. That's why God doesn't say to the people, line up at the tabernacle. Each one of you, one at a time, come into the Holy of Holies and place the blood on the altar. Rather than each individual person in the people of Israel coming and making atonement, they have to go through an intermediary. They need somebody to represent them before God. That lesson's being taught early on. And so the author of Hebrews here is pointing out what the high priest does. The high priest acts on behalf of men in relation to God. Doing what? Offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is why we need an intermediary. This is why we need someone to go into the presence of God and represent us and to do so efficaciously. Right? It needs to work. That person representing us needs to be welcomed by God, received by God, accepted by God as our representative in order for their representative work to be effective. So he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins because we are sinners and we cannot come into the presence of God without a representative taking the blood of a sacrifice. The author of Hebrews reminds us in verse 2 that because that person was a human being, an Israelite even, uh, and is, is fallen like the rest of us, he's able to sympathize with us, to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he is beset with weakness. He himself is beset with weakness. So there's a unity. Uh, we see here that this representative can't be anyone or anything else. It must be one of us that goes into the Holy of Holies and makes atonement. One of us who stands between us and God. That anticipates the humanity of Christ. Jesus Christ comes fully God, but he takes on humanity fully. Everything that is true of us as humans about what we are, body and soul, Christ has taken on himself. And even though he doesn't take on our sin nature, which remember, we need to think of like a cancer, because every single human being that's ever lived other than Christ has a sin nature, we, if we're not careful, we tend to think of a sin nature as being native, as being inherent, as if lacking a sin nature makes you somehow less than human, when in fact Adam and Eve were fully human before the fall. No sin nature. The sin nature that all of us have is a cancer that lives in us. Jesus Christ comes, and he does not have that sin nature. He does not have that cancer. He's subject to the weakness that belongs to us as, the, as those under the fall, right? We get sick, we die. Christ is capable of being sick, injured, and killed. But he is not a sinner. He does not have a sin nature. Nonetheless, he does have this weakness. He reminds us, the author of Hebrews in verse 3, because of this, that is his weakness, uh, and in this case he's thinking of the sin of the high priest, because of this he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does those of the people. And no one takes this honor to himself. He kind of shifts in verse 4 to this question of how you become the high priest. Uh, 
Even though Christ does not have a sin nature, Christ does take our sin upon himself, and he bears it to the cross. So that, uh, as the New Testament says, he became sin for us, right? So as a great high priest, Christ goes into the Holy of Holies, bearing our sin and guilt. Verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So here, the reason the author is transitioning in verse 4, we're going to see it in the next few verses, is that he wants us to understand that what Christ does, he does as our high priest, just as the high priest under Moses did it. Though there's some literally, infinitely uh, important distinctions between them. But he also acknowledges that Jesus is not a Levite and therefore is not qualified to be that priest under Moses. So he's going to transition here. He's going to point out, how is it that Christ is not a Levite but is qualified to be the priest? Here's how. The priests were priests because they were appointed to it by God. Right? Aaron wasn't the high priest because he was a Levite. Aaron was appointed the high priest by God. Every one of his descendants who served as high priest did so because they were appointed by God to be the high priest. There was nothing about the tribe of Levi that made them somehow better qualified. In fact, when you look back at the history, the tribe of Levi might be the least qualified tribe in terms of bringing something to the table in their service. How is it then that Christ is a priest if he's not a part of the tribe of Levi? The high priests are high priests ultimately because they're appointed by God. And so that's what the, the author's doing here. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, right? Verse 5, so also Christ. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And so the answer to that question, to that apparent conundrum, that Christ is not a Levite, therefore he can't serve as our high priest. How can the author of Hebrews say he's our high priest if he belongs to Judah? Well, two answers. One, because just like Aaron was appointed by God, so Christ was appointed by God. This is how he came into it. And the other is that there is a different priesthood in the world. And that is the priesthood uh, according to Melchizedek. We'll come back to Melchizedek in a second. Then in 7 through 10, he's going to describe Christ's earthly ministry. We've talked about this some, so I won't belabor it. He says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So, heard because of his reverence. Is that surprising to anybody? Or confusing? Jesus prayed to the Father, and the Father heard his prayers. Why? Because of his reverence. It's not what I, I would have probably put there if, uh, if I was writing this description. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. His, his prayers are heard because he's the Son. 
Now, that may be true. I'm not saying that that's not true or that the author of Hebrews is denying that, but that's not what he wants to emphasize here. His prayers were heard because of his reverence, and if Christ's prayers are heard because of their reverence, how much more ought we to be reverent in prayer? And in reverence, I'm, I'm not primarily thinking of being quiet and closing our eyes and folding our hands and, and you know, that, that kind of reverence. The idea is uh, a, a holy awe, a respect. We come into the presence of God with respect, not lightly, not taking lightly the fact that we have that access, uh, not being cavalier about the fact that we have that access or cavalier in the way that we enjoy the privilege. Christ was heard because of his reverence. Christ gave glory to the Father in his ministry, didn't he? He was always pointing to the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only speak the words the Father has given me to speak. I come to do the will of my Father in heaven. Because of that reverence, that respect, his prayers are heard. We've talked about 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Uh, we could get wrapped around the axle trying to figure out how God learns obedience through suffering. But I, I don't think that we, we want to take a, a sort of Greek philosophical approach to answering that question. I think instead we need to recognize the covenant context in which Christ is at work and that the author of Hebrews is recognizing. So what do I mean by that? We talked about this last week again, so I, I won't belabor it. Adam and Eve were to learn what is good and evil. They were to gain that knowledge. That was the task. And God set them to that task by giving them a command that they were to obey and had they obeyed the command, they would have learned the knowledge of good and evil. But rather than learning it through obedience, they chose to, to enter into league with Satan and take the knowledge for themselves by rebelling against God. And in both cases, they come to the knowledge of good and evil. The text is clear about this. But had they come to it through obedience, it would have meant life forever. Coming to it by disobedience means death forever. And so, what is Christ in that covenantal context? Adam was our federal head, our representative. What he did, he did on our behalf, and he failed. And so all of the, the curse and the judgment and the, the weight of sin and guilt falls on us because our representative chose disobedience over obedience. What we need is a representative who will come stand the test and learn the knowledge of good and evil through obedience to God's word instead of disobedience. That's what we need. We need a new representative. We need to take two on Adam. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is. He's the last Adam. 
or in Romans uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, when he talks about the first man, and then he talks about Christ, both of them having a tremendous uh, effect on human history as representatives. So that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, because there's suffering in obedience. Adam and Eve would have suffered if they had been obedient. How? How might they have suffered? They would have suffered the temptation that they refused to give into. Right? Eve saw that the, the fruit was a delight to the eyes and good to eat and a good source of the knowledge of good and evil. She saw this. And, and now, seeing it, how much more difficult is it to, to say, no, not going to do that. We've been given this truth by God, and we're going to trust that truth and not give in. You say, well, it would have been pretty easy if I'd have been there, right? No, it wouldn't. Uh, listen, if you're upset because Adam was your representative and you didn't get to choose him, let me give you this assurance. He was the best we had to offer. God did not give us a particularly weak example of humanity to represent us in the garden. Nobody, none of us descended from Adam would have done better than our father. He is our representative, unfortunately, in the fall. But thanks be to God, he has sent a son who learned obedience through what he suffered. And having suffered but remained obedient, he was made perfect. Verse 9. Well, that's what was held out to Adam. Death for disobedience, eternal life for obedience. Christ provides that obedience, and he is made perfect. And because he was not acting for himself, but as our representative, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's what Adam should have been. Adam should have been the source of eternal salvation. He should have been the source of eternal life to all of his offspring. But because he failed, because he disobeyed and did so as our representative, he became the source of eternal death to all of his offspring. We now need salvation from that death and eternal life through another source. And that source is Christ. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, how did Christ do this? How did he learn obedience through what he suffered? Therefore being made perfect and therefore becoming the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. He did so as our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The author is going to take a break. He's not going to continue that theme just yet. Not until we get to chapter 7, or right at the end of chapter 6, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right, Exactly the same uh, language being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek from chapter 5. So he's going to pick that thought up right at the end of chapter 6 and really run with it in chapter 7. Everything in between chapter 5 verse 11 and all of chapter 6 is, uh, is part of a, a unit where he's warning us about rejecting this truth. Let me pause for a second. Any questions, comments, observations?
I think we, that language is correct, but what we mean by it, we need to hold lightly. Remember what he's doing, uh, he's doing uh, as an innocent. Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, were innocent. They weren't perfect, right? They were without sin, but they weren't confirmed in that state for eternity. They were without sin, but they were able to sin and able not to sin. And unfortunately, they sinned. And in sinning, they came into the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the author here is saying that Christ came into the knowledge of good and evil through obedience. Remember, Christ, because he doesn't have a sin nature, there's, there's only three categories for us, uh, really. Technically four, if you follow Thomas Boston. Uh, we're either innocent, that is, without sin, but capable of sinning. Or we are confirmed in righteousness because we've passed the test, so now we're, we're without sin and we can't sin. Or we fail the test and we go from being innocent to being sinners. And we, we therefore are fallen, right? We either know, we either have the knowledge of good and evil because of obedience or because of sin. Those are the only two ways as human beings we come into that knowledge. Christ does not have a sin nature, and he has not sinned. Therefore, he does not come into the knowledge of good and evil through rebellion against God. He comes into the knowledge of good and evil through obedience to God. Now, if we, if we step back and we say, okay, well, at what point did he pass the test? At what point does he know good and evil? What does it mean for him not to know good and evil prior to uh, the test being completed? That's, that's very difficult, and I think is actually contrary to the, the image itself. And that's what I mean by Greek philosophical categories. Greek philosophical categories aren't necessarily wrong, but sometimes we're too dogmatically attached to answering questions according to those categories. Remember, Christ is a representative, right? And so he has to come into the knowledge of good and evil by doing what the Father tells him to do all the way to the end. No disobedience. Uh, and he does that up to the point of death. So through that suffering, he comes to that knowledge and in so doing, merits eternal life for himself. And you say, he's God. How can he have eternal life? I mean, he's eternal, right? He's also fully man. He's human, completely, utterly human. And as such, his humanity must come through this test and establish, be established as righteous. And he can only do that by, by keeping all of the Father's commands, including the command to to go to the point of death, right? So, questions? David. Verse 7, or two quick ones. Um, allow Christ and Peter, is that referencing the, the garden of Gethsemane? And also, uh, the angels gave to save him from death. They're saying that God could have taken him to the cross, but chose not to because he wanted to save him, or they're saying that saving him through death as in resurrection. He died, but not all of So I... I, don't, I think it's all of it. I don't think we have to limit ourselves to one or the other. The loud cries and tears 
Certainly, we know about those loud cries and tears from the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it's not necessary for us to believe those are the only time that Christ prayed with loud cries and tears. Um, it may have been the loudest cries and the, the most tears. Of course, he's sweating drops of blood as he prays in the garden the night that he's betrayed. Uh, God is able to save him from death, both to keep him from dying and to raise him from the dead, right? Um, of course, we know what God did. He raised him from the dead. Uh, but I think the more important thing with that phrase, who was able to save him from death, is we're being told that Christ recognized the power and authority of the Father. That God ordains all things. And, and the expression, the greatest expression of that truth is to acknowledge that he holds life and death in his hand. God gives life where he wills. He takes it where he wills. And should he wish to give it back again, he can. That's the God to whom he cried and prayed. Other questions? Craig? Just a comment. Uh, the verb for learn, there's words in Greek that he could have used that are much more intellectual, like with the connotation of like cognitive coming to know. But he uses a word um, that the verb is related to a noun, manthano, which the noun we usually translate disciple, but then the disciple. Yeah, that's helpful, Craig. And that gets at kind of some of what I was trying to, to get at with the idea of the, the Greek philosophy. Um, that just this very black and white mechanistic, you know, uh, whereas the, the Eastern mind and what I think is, is contained there in the word that was used for learned uh, is, is much less a, a function of like the matrix getting plugged in and data being downloaded into Jesus' brain. He, he didn't factually know something, and then he did factually know something. Uh, it's, it's more about a pattern of living and being. Okay, we've got five minutes left. Anything else? Liz. Yes, so um, in our understanding of how Scripture is to be understood and how all of it holds together, uh, the word we use is covenant. Uh, that is that God created us, and then he established a relationship with us, and that relationship is a covenant relationship where God makes promises to us 
as our covenant God, and he fulfills those promises. Uh, and in, in redemptive history, uh, there are three main covenants. But one of them, what we call the covenant of redemption, is an eternal covenant outside of time between the three members of the Trinity. I'm going to set that one aside for a minute, because from a narrative perspective, uh, I, I think it's true, and I think it's necessary to understand it. But I, I don't think we need it in the next three minutes. The other two covenants are the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And the covenant of works is the covenant established with Adam in the garden. God establishes the covenant of works with Adam. And the covenant of works is, Adam, if you will keep my commandments, you will live forever. And if you break my commandments, you will die. And Adam entered into that covenant as a representative. We're members of that covenant as well because our representative was there and made covenant with God. The language of covenant's not in the creation account, uh, but all the elements of covenant are present there. And later in the minor prophets, uh, Adam is described as being in covenant with God and breaking that covenant. So that's a, a quick covenant of works. When the covenant of works was broken by Adam, the curse of that covenant fell on Adam and all of his descendants. That's us. And the curse of that covenant was death. Now you say, okay, so that covenant's over, right? It's not. That covenant is still in effect. That's the covenant that condemns all of us to death and the wrath of God. All of us are born into and under the covenant of works as covenant breakers from conception. David in the Psalms, in sin was I conceived. Not because the particular act of conception was itself sinful, but because he was a sinner from conception, right? Two sinners bore another sinner. That's why David talks about himself that way in the Psalms. <clears throat> so what has God done? Has he done anything? Has he left us under that just judgment? He hasn't. He's promised to send someone born in the line of Eve who will do what the first Adam failed to do. That is, he will fulfill the covenant of works. He will live a perfectly righteous life. And in living that perfectly righteous life, he'll fulfill the covenant of works. So that the promises of the covenant of works will flow to him and everyone he represents. But we have another problem. We're under the curse. And God doesn't pretend the curse isn't there. In the very same person and work that the covenant of works is fulfilled, the curse of that covenant is also put away. Jesus suffers the curse of the covenant of works so that we don't have to, so that we are excused from the curse. But we're not just excused from the curse. We're excused from the curse and the terms of the covenant of works are met for us in Jesus Christ as though Adam had kept the command and there had never been a fall. God's promise to send that person who will do that work for us is the covenant of grace. So the covenant of grace is the answer to the covenant of works. Christ in the covenant of grace 
fulfills the covenant of works for us and puts away the curse. So when we come back to the verses here, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I say this is a covenantal context. We understand this rightly when we read it from a covenant perspective because Adam was in covenant with God when the command was given and keeping covenant meant keeping the command and the result of keeping the command was being made perfect forever and knowing good and evil as one who had been obedient. That's what should have happened, it didn't. Because he chose disobedience, he, he received death. Not perfection, not eternal life, but death. Christ has come in the covenant of grace to answer the covenant of works. So what does Christ do? He keeps the command, learns obedience through, or learns uh, the knowledge of good and evil through obedience, and doing so, now receives the promises of the covenant of works. Eternal life, perfection forever. And again, because he's a representative, he also merits that for us. He earns it for us so that we have eternal salvation as well. Um, Melchizedek is, uh, is only briefly seen in Genesis uh, and then appears again here in Hebrews uh, also mentioned in the Psalms, uh, in Psalm 110, which is quoted by the author of Hebrews. Melchizedek was the king of a, a city called Salem, uh, which later becomes Jerusalem, uh, same city. But he's not only the king, he's also the high priest of that city. And when he comes out to meet Abraham, Abraham tithes to him. The author of Hebrews is going to unpack all of this later. By tithing to him, Abraham showed that he, he, Melchizedek, his priesthood was greater than Abraham and the priesthood that would later come through Abraham, the Levitical priesthood. Christ's priesthood is not just other. He's not just technically qualified to be a high priest because he's in the order of Melchizedek and not Levi. The Melchizedekian priesthood is a greater priesthood than the priesthood of Levi. And that's Christ's priesthood. So he's a greater priest, greater high priest. Okay, we're just a few minutes late, so I'm gonna go ahead and close this in prayer. We'll pick back up here in verse 11 of chapter five and, uh, and for as long as we need to work through the warning uh, that, that reaches its pinnacle in the opening verses of chapter six. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who has done all that is necessary for our salvation, uh, who came and uh, though he was fully God and fully man, uh, was tempted throughout his life, never gave in to the temptation, uh, suffered not only the temptation itself, but uh, went on to suffer even death for us. Uh, we thank you that because of his finished work, He's made perfect and makes us perfect as well, and that we have eternal salvation in him. And we give you thanks for Jesus Christ and his finished work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.